0: One of the things that seems that people love about Arweave is that it goes beyond speculation. It actually is functional and it has a lot of utility. So how do you differentiate between speculative tokens and like the true functionality of certain web3 projects?
1: Yeah, it's it's tricky. You know, I think you kind of have to separate the token from the stuff people are building because You know, token price is driven by a lot of things. It's driven by, like, the tokenomics and just, you know, whatever the kind of flavor of the month is. Um, So I look at a lot of crypto projects and their current token valuations, and a lot of it looks pretty speculative. And, you know, uh, there's definitely value in ROE, but there's a lot of speculation going on there, too. But when I look at what's being built, um, you know, people are building a lot of real projects. I would say most of the project people are trying to build are real things. Um, it's like any startup, Like a lot of those things are going to fail, but it's not because they're not trying to build real things. There's a lot of attempts to build real things, and that's what you know r- really interests me about the ecosystem and, and keeps me interested in it. You're
0: tuned to the Rcast, where we talk about the blockchain on the Rcast and how your data remains. It's the Rcast, where R-Drive is the topic. Censorship-resistant permanence. Yeah, we got it. We're back again with episode 11 of the Rcast, This week, we've got Madison, Wisconsin's David Whittington, who not only does a lot of great work for R-Drive and RIO, he's also the man who popularized the elephant emoji you see in all the R-Weave theme posts. So uh, shout out to David. It was a really great interview. Thanks to all the R-Drive users who came out to our New York meetup. We had a special visit from Sam Williams in front of the New York Public Library. Here's our interview with David Whittington. All right, friends. Welcome back to the Rcast. And this week, we have a guest who couldn't be more perfect for the themes of this podcast, David Whittington, who is an REO system architect, and he's the CEO of Strong Data Labs. And he has a Patreon where he makes videos about R-Weave. He knows a ton about everything. <laughs> and so, I wanted to welcome David to the Rcast. Welcome, David. Um. Where are you based? Unless it's secret. I grew like, where up are you from? in
1: uh, Central Illinois, and then you know went to school in Indiana. I spent some time in out east in Pennsylvania, but you know I kind of wanted to move back closer to family, and they're all in the Chicago area. And did, <laughs> that's a little bit too much like urban sprawl for me. So uh, Madison, Wisconsin, seemed like a nice area. I've done remote work for a long time, so I can kind of pick you know, where I want to live and seemed like a nice place. So that's kind of where I ended up.
0: Madison. It's interesting. Cause it's the co- It's a big college town. When we tour, it's always like one of the best places to play. Cause people, there are really friendly mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. nice. Um, I have so- someone I work with there who designs game. He's an indie games designer. Mm-hmm. Is it, would you say there's like a big tech community or is it so decentralized? No, there's a generalize? pretty
1: active tech community, you know, um, You know, University of Wisconsin in Madison is, I want to say, I don't know. It's definitely a top 20, um, like, software engineering school. And, uh, you know, the area is big enough that it tends to retain a decent amount of talent. There's a lot of, like, healthcare IT here, too. So, yeah, there's a pretty good, you know, like, software crowd here. I think there's even some, like, crypto community. I haven't actually got involved in the local community there yet, but I think there is some around. So... Yeah, it's a pretty it's a pretty nice area if you want to um, you know not be in a giant city but still have like some startup culture and uh, tech culture, that
0: kind of thing. And if you're missing the big city, Chicago's really what it's like just a few hours away, right if you yeah, really it's just a couple
1: it. hours so it's it's super easy to get there actually my family's going there next week for a little spring break trip. so yeah, it's it's really easy to get to big cities. Milwaukee is actually pretty nice too. I have a lot of interesting stuff there.
0: Um yeah it's it's cool because like it's I love doing this podcast because I love hearing people's stories about what brought them to web3 what they're optimistic about what it says about the zeitgeist of the changing world how the internet has made us really look at each other differently and the world differently and you're someone who is who has a lot of knowledge specifically about arweave amongst other things so we'll just start there like how long have you been in into web three or blockchain, like what was your first exposure Yeah, to it?
1: so it's kind of um you know common fits and starts for me. So I was intrigued by Bitcoin very early on, played with it a bit, you know, did some mining, that kind of thing, but never got like super into it. You know, I never I never was like I'm not independently wealthy now. You know, I wasn't a believer enough to like put a bunch of money into it. But I was like the whole um you know, having a decentralized ledger that people can write things to, and some notion of decentralized currency or store of value—you know, whatever you want to call it—was super interesting. It was always unclear to me how it would play out and what it would be valuable for. I think some of that we're still figuring out. But you know, whenever you, whenever a fundamentally new technological capability emerges, I have a lot of faith that some application will come from it. Um, even if it's not obvious what it will be. So I think some of that we're still figuring out. But anyway, so I had some interest early on, but never really like dove all the way in. And I've just been kind of keeping an eye on it. And then last year, um, yeah, I guess last year and like the year before, so like 2020, 2021, it's like, oh, things are starting to happen. So I should check in on this again. Um, And when I looked at it this time, like, oh, wow, people have actually built a lot of stuff. And some of it seems to be, real stuff that people are using. So that intrigued me. Um, And then I, you know, I stumbled across Arweave. and my technical background is, you know, a lot of like database storage systems, um, functional programming, that kind of thing. And so when I realized you could maybe do permanent storage, like it hadn't occurred to me that that was a thing you could do in a scalable way. That really, really caught my attention um, because I think... uh, That changes a lot of things in the technology world. And so that's, that's why it's currently kind of dove in. It's like, okay, I have to figure out some way to do something with this, you know, and eventually had an opportunity there and just have been working at it ever since.
0: You're doing something, you're working for the team, doing something that hasn't been done before, like truly decentralizing the gateway in in an exciting way. how, how would you explain that to, like, like let's say my mom, she listens to this podcast. How would you explain what your role is, like, in a very layperson way? Not that my mom doesn't understand this stuff, but, like, you're obviously passionate about are we even, and all this. So how would you yeah, explain? Yeah, so
1: I've thought about this a bit. I think it's a challenge um, to explain. And part of it is, um, it's not clear, you know, just from the, the marketing, what are we is missing that you would need to add to it in the first place. Um, so you, you kind of have to start there. So Arweave as it stands right now, um, there's a gateway for it, Arweave.net, and it is you know more or less a centralized service that sits in front of a decentralized network, and it's the thing that's providing everyone access to it. Um, you know, there's nothing that stops other people from building and running gateways, but it's not an easy thing to do. Uh, So, you know, no one, and and the main one works pretty well. So no one has really stepped up to do it. Um, You know, I think even without RIO, if you just kind of ran the network forward into the future, eventually other people would do it, but it would probably not happen as quickly. Um, So so what is that thing doing, right? So the incentives of Arweave are basically, um, if you give it data, it promises to store it. And there's this game, you know, like game theory style game, incentive game, between the people storing the data that gives them an incentive to share the data with each other because they need to get access to each other's data to get paid for storing it. But there's nothing in that whole picture that says, okay, these people are storing it. You don't have to share it with anyone besides each other. Now, the default way that RWE was configured, you can go in and access some of the data and um, you know, it's not like it's locked down. However, bandwidth has a cost. And so over time, what you would expect to happen is the people that don't have an incentive to share the data with you, the user of the network, would do it less and less. So you'd probably retain some access to it. Um, but unless you are participating in this data exchange, they don't really have a strong reason to prioritize your traffic. So it's kind of mm-hmm. like, yeah, you know, I was trying to think of a good analogy for this. It. It's, it's kind of like you have a friend, you know, and you're paying... The, you're like moving or something, you're paying your friend to store your stuff and you just give your friends some money and you give them the instructions like, I'm going to give you this money and you're going to store this stuff for me. Um, but your friend is very literal. And so they just take the stuff and they throw it in like this big dumpster with a whole bunch of other stuff. And then later you came, come to them and you're like, give me the stuff back. And they're like, whoa, whoa. whoa you just gave me money to store it, you know, not give it back. So the the gateway network is all about getting the stuff out. You need to somehow incentivize that. And the other thing that I would add on to that is like, ideally, you don't store it in a dumpster, <laughs> you know, you put it in boxes with labels, you have some way of indexing it so people can find the stuff they want. And that's what the gateway networks are about.
0: Let me ask you this, how does this um, dovetail with the Web2 notion of net neutrality? That's interesting. So,
1: you know, net neutrality actually used to work for ISP too, so this is uh, that whole conversation is interesting. So, net neutrality is mostly about prioritizing traffic um, at least it n- narrowly defined. So, I do not think the gateways are going to solve the problem of guaranteeing everyone access to all the pieces of the data all the time without paying for it. Someone still has to pay for it. And my um, my assumption is that if you pay enough, someone will, will give you access to the data. Um, but I do expect that there will be a variety of gateways that have sort of different views on Arweave for a variety of reasons. One is just scale. It's going to be hard for you know, especially smaller gateway providers to provide uniform access to the entire weave. Um, so there will probably be different views uh, of it and uh, probably different incentive strategies around providing access to it. So I don't know. <laughs> it's kind of, that the whole space is kind of complicated and hard to break down. Um, yeah. And I don't think we have complete solutions for all of it. Uh, but nah, that's my attempt to answer that. <laughs>
0: I think that so much of what makes this space interesting to me is that it's right. speculative, it's new, it's um exciting because everything's being figured out and the elements of how this can be helpful socially and historically yeah. technologically and you know I was just wondering what brought you to our drive like how did you find out about the project and come on board what was your first Time you'd heard about our drive
1: remember the very first time I saw it, it might have been, you know, linked from some, um, our weave team thing somewhere, uh, you know, just saying like this is a thing that's been built. But I came across it very early on, and it's actually one of the things like, oh, yeah, this looks like a, you know, reasonably professional effort by people who have, uh, <laughs> some idea what they're doing, you know, so it was like a, um, Kind of a stamp of credibility to some degree uh, on the on the network in in my view and you know i just it seemed like a relatively obvious thing to do to build something like that on it and it seemed like it filled a interesting and you know useful niche in the ecosystem so yeah i found it really early on and that's that's kind of i got to it but i don't actually remember i think it was some just some site i clicked on like researching our weave because like my first task when i found the network is like okay someone says they can store things permanently can that actually work and i just spent a whole bunch of time trying to figure out if the thing can actually work um and so i researched <laughs> all kinds of stuff about the network during that time
0: like a uh, like a true system architect you wanted to draw your own conclusions right, right? <laughs> like
1: <laughs> the crypto there's a lot of noise in the crypto space and there's stuff that just flat out doesn't work so you got to figure it out
0: you're the only one of the only people I know who's also a YouTuber with a Patreon page where your, your whole thesis is creating videos about Arweave, which I think is really cool as you're like, as you have time for that, like when you do, like, tell me about like, yeah, what you're passionate about, about Arweave and how, how it's been trying to create this content based on it outside of your other yeah, job.
1: So the thing, you know... Th- Arweave has this really great and I think effective marketing pitch that it's the censorship resistant platform, right? And I think that is super important. I absolutely do not want to downplay that. Um, and I think it's also like a really good uh, pitch for the network. Um, that is not the thing that like really excites me about it. Uh, the thing that excites me is that it is a, it's not a, place to put your data it's like a global address space that's not tied to any physical specific physical location and that has really big like system architecture implications Um, so if you look at the web now like if you go to a website um, you know you go to google.com like what's it doing you put an address in there it kind of seems like it just exists but it doesn't what it does is it's going to look up uh, so uh, some set of servers via DNS, and those servers exist in a place, and it's, it's going go to go that place, and it's going to find that data. Um, that's a great system, and it has a lot of. That's um, an easier to bootstrap system in some ways, and it's got a lot of nice scalability properties that have brought us, you know, as far as we have with the web. But. All of that is reliant on people maintaining those places to go and maintaining that linkage. In other words, Google can pop into and out of existence, and it's impossible to get a snapshot of this whole whole system, like the whole web at one time. But with Arweave, you can actually say, what is our, on Arweave at a point in time? And it doesn't depend on any individual in that whole network maintaining anything. The network just has to exist. And then you can ask the network, like, what did you know at this point in time? Um, and everything is globally addressable independent of a location. It's just about the data. And that really changes the way that you can use the system. You can put data into it and not have to rely on any single party to maintain it, and then you can rely that that data is going to be there in the future. Um, and that that just changes what you can build a lot. So, like, a few examples of, of things that people like don't know that we're missing in the web right now, which will maybe make the... sort of more nebulous uh technical stuff a little clearer so you don't think about it a lot but it's it's really hard to like say you have a blog you know like you're one of those people who still has a blog and you want to embed some content from someone else's blog like like say you want to quote a piece of text the way we currently do that is you you copy it right and like why do you copy it? you don't even think about that but like you're usually going to copy it and the reason you do is because you can't rely on the thing that you're copying from still being there and not changing. Mm. Weave totally changes that. If you want to embed some content, you can just address it. You can say, like, I know where it is in Arweave. Just look there and render it in this other place. And no one can change it ever. Um, you know, it's possible you somehow lose access to it because, like, a gateway is not providing you access. But you know, I, would, I think for most content that becomes popular, that's, not, that's really a non-issue. Um, so that enables this kind of really rich embedding of content from different places uh, that's not dependent on any service providers maintaining that content in the future. Um, another thing that's really hard to do that like people don't even know is a thing you can do for the most part is backlinks. So when you're browsing the web, you have all these links you're clicking on, right? And they're going to they're like outward bound links. They're, they're, I'm on a page, it's telling me I can go here, I can see some other thing. But you don't see all the inbound links. And why not? It's because that's a really, really hard index to maintain, and it's changing all the time. In fact, you can't even get a whole snapshot of the web to get that index you know, at a point in time. But if if none of the data is changing in the past, you can at least say, like, okay, what are all the links that point into this page, you know, as of this particular time, being able to search and see some of those would be very, very valuable. And it's just something we can't build right now. So I think the technical capabilities that we provides to let us build novel things that are completely impossible, um, are really, really compelling. Uh, and I think, you know, I have this broader thesis of like, um, it's, it's related to the censorship idea that, you know, you talk about the memory hole, being able to change the past is very useful for controlling a population at a point in time in an authoritarian regime. But that's a, that's a broader right. thing. It's like learning is based on knowledge of the past. So I think that the more we can retain and sort of index and understand the past, the faster we can learn. And there's a lot of problems that we need to solve in the world that actually heavily depend on our learning rate. You know, like energy problems, um, problems with healthcare, like all those things depend on us being able to learn quickly. So anything we can do to accelerate that, I think, is uh, pretty important right now because I don't think we can go backwards in technology. We have to figure out how to go forwards productively.
0: People who are optimistic about the future of our humanity and the future of the planet and the future of being able to be very efficient with data. Um, people who believe in that are it's champions of our weed outside of like the political element of the censorship resistance. And I think about how, you know, my background coming from the music industry, so much music that I put out on platforms like MySpace or even mp3.com, you can't find it, you mm-hmm. know, or bands I loved. It's yeah, gone. Yeah, and totally. so it's like, it fills a need for people of our generation who saw how web one and web two kind of promised a lot, but didn't deliver in the long run. Definitely. Yeah.
1: Like YouTube, YouTube really stresses me out because I think YouTube is one of the most phenomenal education resources that has ever been created. You know, it's great. Um, You know, like Google, these centralized providers get a lot of flack, but like they do a lot of great stuff. Uh, But you know, like who's to say that that will be with us in 50 years? I have no idea. So if we can back that up and provide ways to, Preserve access to it. Uh, that would be incredibly valuable. The amount of like tacit knowledge of like, hey, I want to fix my furnace or something that's on YouTube is just like mind blowing. It's never existed before. That's it's it's incredible.
0: So, David, speaking of YouTube, like I agree, it's a great resource, and you have a very original, cool channel that um, I saw is linked through your patreon and you help fund it through your patreon let's talk a little bit about how you use youtube to educate people yeah about so
1: free. that was kind of um has an interesting origin story so you know i started out just building the the project you know this decentralized mining pool um but i was coming from a place where i would do a lot of pair programming you know which is basically like two people programming together at the same time and i was kind of missing that workflow and like one part of the part of the workflow there is you're you know, verbalizing what you're doing and just just doing that much is actually pretty good feedback and helps you clarify your thinking. So I was, you know, not having another person, I was like, okay, I could just do this and stream it and it would have like a dual purpose. It's like kind of marketing education and this like substitute for pair programming. So that's how I started. And, um, you know, I've had like, Pauses here and there, but uh, yeah, I've just been I've just been doing that, and then later on, I did some I don't know what to call them exactly, sort of more lecture-oriented almost videos. I, I don't like that I don't like that labeling, but I haven't thought of a better term. You know, basically it's like sharing some thoughts about how Arweave can be used. <clears throat> and part of what I want to do is I have I actually did a Kickstarter a while back for a game that I, I developed. So there's like a certain set of people who, um, are following me from other like areas of the technology world. And so I figured, Mm. okay, if I put content out there, it may reach some of those people too. Um, so I I was hoping that like, okay, I make these videos, they'll serve this role for me. And then they'll also potentially draw some other people into the ecosystem. So I don't know if they've done that, but they've been useful at least for me. And I think they've you know, provided me some like marketing in the ecosystem, so it's yeah you know, worked out pretty well. And then sort of along the way, I've had people just asking if they could sponsor it, and so I set up the Patreon. I was like, sure, you know, why not? Like, <laughs> certainly not going to hurt. Uh, and so that's where that came from.
0: Okay, so yes, yeah, so Zeta War is the game. So if y'all Google that Z E T A War, yeah, explain explain the game game into in like briefly if you want. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Awesome. So um, the closest thing that like a wide audience might know about is Advance Wars, which was old, I think, came from Game Boy uh, way back. So Zeta War is like kind of like that. It's like a turn-based strategy game. You have these little units, you know, like tanks and people, and you move them around on a map in a turn-based way, and you're trying to take over bases, and, like, the bases provide resources, and then that lets you build more units, etc. cetera. Um, and there's a whole bunch of different games in this genre. I, I made it because there was this game We War, which was kind of this fun web game, that existed for a long time, and then EA shut it down. So this is actually somewhat related to Arweave 2. Um, oh. That it was shut down. I was like, well, that sucks. Like, And I had this sort of interesting opportunity. I was like leaving a job, and you I know, just wanted to do something else for a bit. So I did this Kickstarter, and I was like, okay, I will make it so that you can't shut it down. Um, so it's the whole game is all run client-side. And if you play it, you'll see you get this really super long URL, and that actually holds the entire game state. So, like, I have to keep paying the bill for the storage for it, but it's, like, pennies a month, you know? So it's like, I, why would I shut it down? That would just be cruel. <laughs> um, and then people can just play the game by passing URLs around. Uh, so in a way, it's like, okay, the perfect place for this ultimately is on Arweave. Um, I've joked with people, it's like, my work on Arweave is, is, like, the longest yak shave in the world, which is, you know, just like you're doing something to accomplish some other goal um, to get a place to put this, ultimately,
0: it's pretty cool. I'm following you on Twitter now. I saw that you, yeah, you posted that you're going to be putting it on through Arweave. That's awesome. It's all connected.
1: Nice. Yeah, David. Hopefully, yes. At so, some point in the future, that will definitely happen. If nothing else, I can just take the current version, throw it in a manifest, and it will live on Arweave forever. So I hope to do more than that. But you know, there's a lot of a lot of hoops to jump through to like build gateway networks and stuff first, which take a lot of time.
0: I know you told me before that you had a lot of answers to this question, but what other blockchain projects are you excited about outside of the RWE um, ecosystem? So
1: I like Ethereum. I like Solana. And I like Agoric, uh, which probably most people haven't heard of. And I'll I'll explain why for each of those, because the, the why is really the thing I think matters. So I know, you know, Ethereum is very... Um, I think divisive thing, like some people really hate it. Some people really love it. Uh, the thing I like about it is I listen to all their dev calls and I know that their ecosystem hasn't always been this way, but these days they put a lot of thought into how they are organizing their development. Um, and it, you know, I'm sure there's all kinds of like stuff happening behind the scenes. That's, you know, little mini dramas and stuff, but, um, I think there's a lot to be learned there from how their community has matured and developed this kind of cross team collaboration. I think some people would criticize it as being, you know, sort of too centralized. Like there's, you know, there's a bunch of people. Um, I mean, it's on YouTube, so it's not, not really like there's a bunch of people in dark room figuring things out or something, but you know, there is coordination happening, but if, if that's the kind of project you run, or want to run? I think you can learn a lot from paying attention to how they're doing it. Um, you know, and if and if you, there's like past history that people are hung up on, there, like look past that and see how they're doing things now. And I think there's there's a lot to learn. So Solana, I love because so my buying background is not crypto. It's like software engineering, and to me, Solana is like the software engineering chain. It's like just raw, brutalist engineering where people try to make computers do as much as they can do as fast as they can do it. Um, You know, the people who started it are like all ex Qualcomm people. And I love that because I think like one thing that I see a lot in the crypto space is people just don't know um, some of the capabilities of modern hardware and just like the crazy amount of performance you can get out of them if you know how to use it. So I love just seeing a bunch of like hardcore engineers just you know, squeezing all the juice out of the hardware and blowing people's minds. Um, and then the last one I mentioned, which I just think is really cool from, like, a like a computer science perspective, kind of, is Agoric, which smart contracts are full of, like, landmines and broken glass. They're incredibly hard to write well. And Agoric is a bunch of people, I guess it's a little bit similar to Solana, where it's, like, people with this existing experience in capabilities based operating system security came in and designed a smart contracting system. And so it's just a way safer system. I think it might be a little too, um, it's it's maybe one of those systems where it's like too perfect in a way. I mean, not that there's no flaws in it, but like it's, it's maybe over-engineered and it will not succeed because of that. Um, but I think there's a lot to learn there that may be applicable to other systems.
0: One of the things that seems that people love about Arweave is that it goes beyond speculation. It actually is functional and has a lot of utility. So, how do you differentiate between speculative tokens and like the true functionality of certain Web three projects?
1: Yeah, it's it's tricky. You know, I think you kind of have to separate the token from the stuff people are building because. You know, token price is driven by a lot of things. It's driven by, like, the tokenomics and just, you know, whatever the kind of flavor of the month is. Um, So I look at a lot of crypto projects and their current token valuations, and a lot of it looks pretty speculative. And, you know, uh, there's definitely value in ROE, but there's a lot of speculation going on there, too. But when I look at what's being built, um, you know, people are building a lot of real projects. I would say most of the project people are trying to build are real things um it's like any startup like a lot of those things are going to fail but it's not because they're not trying to build real things there's a lot of attempts to build real things and that's what you know r- really interests me about the ecosystem and, and keeps me interested in it um there's serious efforts to build things
0: before we talk about rio i wanted to talk about quickly strong pool
1: uh i would say at this point a lot of the core technology is built um I think the thing I am trying to sort of juggle personally is bringing out a public release, you know, is a lot more, (laughs) takes a lot more than technology and will take a lot of my time. So I have to figure out a way to manage a public release at some point um, in a way that does not sabotage the efforts of like all the things I'm trying to build. Um, So I think that's probably going to require me to scale the organization some, but like a lot of the technology there is built, like I, I, this, Actually, just this past month, I think I got the final pieces in place to have the whole thing work, and it's been running privately for months now. Uh, hasn't won a lot of blocks, but you know the functionality is all there. So yeah, it's coming along. I mean, stay tuned, and we'll you'll hear more about it. I think the the highest priority for me on that project is just to have a really sustainable, scalable way for people to run nodes for the network, and I think there's a variety of ways to do that, and uh, the, the productization of the mining pool and the release of it is part of that. And where it comes will depend on my focus on other things as well.
0: Well, speaking of where your focus is going and what else you're working on, you are a system architect for RIO. What can we reveal about where that's at?
1: Yeah. So, you know, I think the core thing is just, um, we've had this central gateway for weave that's existed for a while and it's it's great, you know. It's like served people pretty well. Not that there's never glitches, but uh, I'm very excited that we're we're gonna take that and make it something that people can run. You know, maybe not in exactly the same form as it's running in the centralized version, because that's a big system. But the fact that people are gonna be able to run a version of this themselves and provide access to Arweave themselves, I think, is super exciting. I think that's both going to um, let a lot of people participate who couldn't before and I think it's going to help with people in the ecosystem who are trying to develop and build you know they'll they'll be able to run things themselves and build on top of that and not be as reliant on one central system uh, to, to build on so I think it will it will help them a lot too and I'm very excited about that
0: I'm excited too and if you all want to follow David he on Twitter he's djwhitt, DJ wit and on Patreon, it's it's the same thing. Patreon.com slash DJWHITT.
1: Follow me on Twitter is the best place to, to get my random thoughts and information about projects I'm working on. And there will be other places to get information on StrongPool. And certainly, you know, there's existing places to follow R-Drive and, and RIO. Um But yeah, that's that's the best place. Things will branch out from there in the future.
0: Dave, you've been a very easy to talk to guest, And I love that you were thoughtful with your answers. And uh, yeah, thank you for being on. I think this episode, well, I know this episode is going to be really interesting for people. So I appreciate your time.
1: Yeah, you're welcome. It's been great uh, having a conversation with you.
0: Thanks, David. Great answers, great themes. And everyone check out his game because it's very creative and very unique. We'll be back in two weeks with another exciting interview. Thanks for listening. We'll see you then. Bye.